白いバットのジャングルに今日も嵐が吹き荒れるルール用の悪党に正義のパンチをぶちかませ行け行け大河大河マスク Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the pod, we welcome back Wrestling Observer Live's Mike Sempervivi to talk about the life and career of the legendary Harley Race, who passed away a few weeks ago. We talk about the incredible adversity Harley overcame to become the eight time world champion and one of the most respected wrestlers of this era. There's also a lot of history chat about the NWA, Jim Barnett, Sam Mushnick, the Fuller Welch dynasty, the greatness of Ron Fuller's Studcast podcast, and a whole bunch of other things. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Right here is $25,000. And it goes to any human being that can eliminate Ric Flair from Lashley. He goes into the mic, he goes into the lens. To push the breaking point, and here's what it read. Got three kids full of cash for anyone who acts. And I'm gonna carry out his attention tag. Somebody take that. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. We could not let the passing of a legend go without doing a podcast, so thankfully we have our good friend Mike Sempervivi from the Wrestling Observer Network to talk about the recent passing of Harley Race. How's it going, Mike? It's going pretty good. Thanks for having me on. It's、uh, unfortunate timing、uh, because of the.、Uh, Because of Harley Race passing away. But,、uh, you know, one, one, if there's a, a positive in any of this, it's、uh, one, he's not suffering anymore. And two,、uh, we get to relive stories about Harley Race and, and hearing a lot of them over the past couple of weeks. And、uh, it's been pretty awesome. Well, the good thing we should say right offhand is it's, I think we're fairly lucky that there is so much footage of Harley from a variety of places. We were. Talking before we started about some of the, the various territories around. And if you, I mean, if you just go by what's on YouTube, not necessarily maybe like what's on the network or, or other places, but you, know, you can pretty much see Harley working in just about every territory there is in the NWA, plus you know, his WWF time. It's, it looks like the only thing we really do. Don't have, I don't think, is there's not a lot of footage of Harley and Larry Henning as a tag team. And I, you know, I think that's one of their regrets. is I think, you know, on paper, that sounds like those would be dynamite things that we could have could have gotten to see. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's, and that's a lot of, I mean, look at how many stars the AWA created, you know, or went through there that they just don't have tape of because they either taped over them or they're gone or whatever it is. And, You know, there's so much out there that I'm sure people haven't seen. You know, we never thought we'd see the last battle of Atlanta. We got that. You know, there, there's all of these things that, that you think are gone forever, and you just have hope that some of it's out there. And maybe somebody somehow has got some reels, you know, in an attic that somehow, some way have been 
uh, kept safe and from the elements and, and something like that. And, and maybe they're, they're around. Uh, that's all you can do is hope. But because Harley was such a prolific touring champion and was champion for so long and in so many reigns, you know, we are blessed to have him out there. I mean, he's one of the few guys that went to, I mean, I don't know who went to Mexico besides Harley race. Maybe Luthez did, but like flair didn't go. Uh, Jack Briscoe didn't go, but Harley went and Harley went everywhere. You know, the, the trips with, with all Japan are of course legendary. And he returned the favor with Baba uh, on his own TV. In fact, in the build up to the match with Ric Flair, uh, in 83, he, he lost to, to Giant Baba in, in St. Louis for the PWF title. Horrible match, uh, but lost on the undercard of a match that I think Flair was having with Dick the Bruiser. I think it was Bruiser Brody, he may have been uh, at the time. So, you know, it, it, he's everywhere. He obviously owned uh, and had a piece of Kansas City in St. Louis, and, and the footage from St. Louis uh, was around for a long time, I, I think is is still available on YouTube. I think maybe High Spots has it. I'm not 100% sure on who's got the rights to that, but that's out there. There's not a lot of Kansas City, but at least some bigger matches uh, that were taped at Memorial Auditorium uh, are, are available. So at least there's that. Obviously, the time that he would spend going down to Houston is available and it is now in the, the, the ownership, under the ownership of Billy Corgan and the NWA as well as everything you get to see on the network from touring in, in world class and, of course, mid-Atlantic, Georgia, Florida. Uh, Harley's been there for, for everything, and we are really blessed to have such a pro. And uh, I did a, a show with the great Brian Last for the Arcadian Vanguard Network for the doing a Harley race special. And, you know, if you wanted to, to pick a, uh, a Mount Rushmore of pro wrestling, you know, while it was still pro wrestling and you wanted to put Harley race on there, I couldn't argue it because who is a, a better and bigger definition of pro wrestling than Harley race. And he is in some ways, the literal dividing line between that other era and the Ric Flair and Hulkamania era for which it's much better known. And, but, the, but as many of us grew up as big flair fans and grew up as the territories were, were contracting, you know, Harley race was the, was the torch passer to Ric Flair. And, you know, of that older era, nobody took it more seriously than Harley race. Nobody took himself more seriously than Harley race. He loved everything that went along with it. Jack Briscoe hated being NWA champion. Other people hated the grind of being NWA champion. Harley race loved it. And and he was so beloved and so feared and so respected by so many. And he's just an amazing character from literally the time he came out of the womb. Uh, it's just been an absolutely amazing. It was an absolutely amazing life for Harley Race. A lot of tragedy, but an incredible amount of triumph, too. Well, it's amazing if you I have to admit that I haven't read uh, I haven't read this week's Observer yet. So I don't know everything that's 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 in there, at least. This week, I'm sure. I'm sure this will be like a multi-part, multi-week kind of thing, as more and more people tell Dave stories. But when you listen to this week's studcast and you listen to Ron Fuller go over Harley's history, and you learn, and I, I mean, I think we all knew, you know, we all knew about the the car wreck where you know his wife died, his pregnant wife died, and he almost lost his leg, and they saved him, and he came back, and we know about the boat accident and things like that. And then you learn he had polio as a kid and you're yeah. thinking 
he, he overcame polio to not just, you know, have a normal functioning life, but to be a pro wrestler. You know, I mean, that's just that's amazing. Crazy. And Crazy. then, yeah, the thing about how he was declared dead and then the guy, you know, luckily, you know, for, like forcibly stopped the surgeons from amputating his leg from the car accident and coming back. And you think, you know, it just goes and. You know, that's amazing. And when you factor in all of the other, like, famous accidents that we've heard about, it's like, you know, Flair came back from a broken back. And, you know, Danny Hodge, you know, walks to the get help holding his broken neck from a car accident. And all these kinds of things. And you just, you know, you just marvel at these people. It's like, it's no wonder they were actually able to physically do what they do. They were just, like, extra human. Gus Karras, uh, his, his his original, I guess, trainer, not the original trainer, but the, the guy that probably helped Harley's career around the most, uh, being the guy that, that made that call of all people, a wrestling promoter, save it, <laughs> you know, and Harley writes a little bit about it in his book. And, you know, it's too bad that, that a Scott Teal or a late Scott Williams or somebody like that didn't get the opportunity to do a book with Harley race because the one he did uh, with the gentleman and I'm brain locking it on his name right now, you know, it was, it was quaint. It was nice to hear a couple of Harley stories and you, you kind of hear him talking about it, you know, in the, in the voice of Harley, but they're not really any groundbreaking stories. They're not really any exciting stories. And that's too bad. Because we, we don't get the, the depth of more. You know, he talks about in his book uh, about Kansas City, and he talks about why he wanted to become the NWA champion again. And it's like, you know, that's not why. You know, he complained about the WWF coming in. And WWF wasn't in there for at least another year. You know, his issue at the time came from Madison and things like that. And I wish we had the opportunity to have somebody peel that onion back more on some of these stories not just the ones like the like the ones we found out about about polio and about the the car wreck and, and things like that, but you know in more in depth about some of the backstage things and his life coming up because it was a very unique one. I mean, number one, working on the Zabisco's farm, the original Zabisco's, and then that moves into to, to Gus Karras and 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 running around Happy Humphrey. Uh, all throughout the Midwest, and then going down at such a young age in the early 60s and working for Goulas Welch in Nashville. You go from Iowa to Nashville, and what a bizarre time. And it's unfortunate. You know, you talk about the Henning time of his career and the early AWA part of his career kind of being lost to time. Man, even before that, going up to work for Tony Santos in Boston and, you know, Les Thatcher, God bless him, at least I believe was able to shine a little bit of light on that. I, I think he had spoken about that uh, during uh, one of his shows. I, I got to go back and double check because I'm behind on a lot of stuff, too. But, you know, he's one of the few guys who's got a connection to those old Santos days, you know, because that's where Les, you know, started at. He went from Ohio to and and was sent up north to to go up there for a while. So like that that part of Harley's career, you know, him grinding really on the grind to come back after the injury he had and to see how people viewed him and all that sort of stuff. Man, I wish we could have gotten a chance to to hear some of those stories and to hear that straight from his mouth too. Yeah, the the book in question is called King of the Ring, 
and it's Harley and someone named Gary Tritz, who I Tritz, will admit, yes. I will admit, I am, I am not familiar with him. So yeah, it's well, too, if you look him up on the on Twitter, because he he worked for like the Jefferson Democrat or or something like that. I can't remember the newspaper that he had worked for in the cover of the book, but you go and you search him on Twitter right now, and he's working as a magician. And so it's like, you know, I don't I don't know how deep his roots of wrestling, uh, you know, were or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I again, it's just one of those things. It's unfortunate. Not as unfortunate as like a Jim Barnett who, you know, went to the grave with so many secrets we wish could have gotten out there. But but still, you know, not the, the best representation of the man's career. Yeah. And you think, you know. Like I said, you listen to this week's Studcast, and you listen to, to Ron Fuller tell all these stories about these matches. It's like you know, too bad he couldn't have had Harley on on like one of his one of his podcasts, you know, when when he had the chance. Because you know, imagine Harley telling those stories himself, talking to Ron. That would have been great. Oh, and it, and it would have needed somebody like a Ron Fuller to pull it out of him because I, you know, you get a public Harley. Even up to his late his late age, because I remember we interviewed him for the the old uh, Ringside Rap show. It was uh, I believe it was me. It was definitely less, and I believe it was Mike Mooney and was on that one. And you know, it was awesome to sit there and listen to to Harley, you know, talk. And it was awesome to sit under that learning tree, you know, while the you know the the red light was on, say. But it was also uh, kind of funny to hear you know Harley with the light off because. As Ric Flair told stories at the Hall of Fame about Harley that caused Harley to dip his head down a little bit and laugh, but also be quite embarrassed, there were plenty of those stories. When you're literally the fastest gun and the fastest driver uh, in all of the land, <laughs> you know, there's there's more in your life that goes probably a, a little bit quickly, too. And, you know, we never got to hear too many of those stories, at least out in the public. And it would have taken somebody like a Ron Fuller to probably poke and prod and have some fun and pull some of those stories out. And, you know, it's just, unfortunately, again, I, I don't know, you know, you never know where tapes could end up or anything like that, you know, audio tapes or videotapes or something like that. But, you know, on some of these meet and greets and conventions and hall of fames and things like that, I, I kind of hope there's some footage that ends up leaking out later on down the line of some of those older, more ribald and, and more fun, uh, <laughs> Harley race stories, uh, coming out over the years. Not that I want to break up the man's family or anything like that, but you know, we only hear about the the Owen story coming out of the, the barbecues. You know, there, there, I'm sure there's some other stuff happened there as well too. Well, the other funny thing is just besides that is like we're talking about all this footage, and I remember, I think it was on that the the Lords of the Ring tape. I think was like the first time that I probably saw bleach blonde harley and that was just such such like a like a mind trip and i'm like i'm like that's not hard i'm like is that really a harley race and then you know it's like now you watch it. it's it's funny he's had so many sort of versions i mean he never really wrestles much differently but it's funny to see his evolution of style over like the 20 years of footage that we have of him yeah and the fact that kind of comes around it kind of comes around in a circle, you know, because you start off with like the still shots out of the magazines of like blonde hair, even if they're black and white, you can tell he's got like this absolutely artificially blonde hair, which is a weird juxtaposition with the just his face, 
<laughs> sorry, Harley, but just that face that you had and the tattoos on the arms and everything. It's like it's like watching it's, it's kind of like the same thing as like a Jackie Fargo. You see the picture and it's like, all right, something's not matching up altogether here. This is wacky. And then, yeah, you see how is he the evolution of Harley. And I mean, at one point he had the 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 type of mustache and and and. A uh, cyber combination that would make Eddie Murray blush. I mean, but you know, for me, the, how I think about Harley, I think of that that hair that's graying on the side and starting to gray in the beard, and that's exactly how I think of Harley. And then, you know, <laughs> later on down the line, you see him clean shaven and back with the blonde hair when he goes up to wrestle for Vince again, and it's just a, it is a a wacky run of style, and, you know, the trunks, too, you know, talk about old school, talk about being uh, from the, the, the different age, you know, the cloth trunks <laughs> for so long as well, too, you know, it's just a, a hell of a career, and, you know, it's funny when he goes up to work for Vince, and it's obviously not the, the high point of his career, but you, you had to go do what everybody else did, I mean, Dory Funk, and Terry Funk had already done it to that point, you know, as former NWA champions. Ric Flair would do it later on down the line. You know, everybody at some point would fall under the employ of Vince McMahon. And when he went up there, yeah, it may have been depressing for the old heads, but I got to be honest, as somebody that was, again, a lot younger and a little bit of a different fan with a di- little bit of a different mentality, even though I loved the NWA and even though I loved rick flair and that style of wrestling and i would have probably preferred harley be that way because i had not seen a ton of harley race being based in the mid-atlantic and me really only getting a chance to see him you know through georgia tv and 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 him coming up that way and through mid-atlantic tv when he had a chance to go full-time with vince and get in there with guys that i also like like the junkyard dog like hacksaw duggan like haku you know, it wasn't the best run, and I'm not going to sit here and, and, and say it was anything other than what it was, but he really made the best of something. And with Dusty Rhodes, you knew it felt like they were trying to make fun of him. With Terry Taylor and some other people, you know how that felt. With Harley, even though it came out later on that they were just playing him you know, as the court jester, it never came across that way. And I think if that's what they had intended – and that's maybe what some of the people backstage thought because of how they presented it, because there were only the top heels out there when he was coronated and stuff like that. I mean, that was again, it was it probably didn't have the effect that they wanted. And I always got a kick out of it again. I didn't get a chance to see him that much, so at least to see him mix it up and and have that match with Hulk Hogan that I thought was good and, and to mix it up with Haku, which I thought was awesome. I was OK with that. Well, I think it's funny now that, you know, obviously that, you know, you and I as smaller children did not know, like, the this the, now that we know the story that, about Harley and, and Haku that goes back to their time in Amarillo, and it's like, now you see them interacting, and, you know, it, it sort of casts Dad in a new light when he passes the, the crown to him, and, you know, like, you, you learn the story of the, you know, the double cross in Amarillo that didn't actually happen. And you're like, because of Haku and you're like, Oh, now this paints us in an entirely new light. You know, when there's no history there, you can't be insulted by it. So, and I was plenty insulted, you know, Ted DiBiase going up there uh, was like, what are you doing? And, 
yeah, the big big Baba turning into the big boss man, or uh, yeah, big Baba turning into the big boss man was a, a little bit to get used to. One man gang, obviously, his transformation. There were plenty of guys who went up to Vince that I had, you know. It twisted my stomach. Terry Taylor, who I just mentioned, you know, is if you would have saw him in UWF with Chris Adams or, or seen him, you know, ascend in the five years before that on national TV, uh, on TBS and a zillion other places, you know, you wouldn't have believed what they did with him. But uh, like I said, I didn't have that history with Harley. He was uh, in a lot of ways a mythical figure living where I was. So, you know, that the stink of Vince that was was put on him. You know, it didn't resonate as much with me. It didn't resonate as much as me as it did with, like, you know, like Hacksaw Duggan even, who, you know, just became more of a cartoon character as soon as he stepped up to, to, to Vince Land. And it's funny, too. It's like a lot of those gimmicks that Vince gave people at the time, you know, I think we really didn't know that how many of them were, like, in-jokes or ribs or things like that. Or, you know, we did not know that, that Ray Trailer's worked history of being a prison guard was not necessarily that much of a work. Yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, well, that's actually kind of, you know, that's the kind of thing where you take it out of Vince's sort of entertainment realm. And, it's, you know, it's entirely possible that in, you know, like 1974 that Ray Trailer, having been a prison guard, would have been a heel whose gimmick would have been that he was a prison guard. He just wouldn't have be called the big boss man and he wouldn't have worn a sheriff's outfit but you know that that gimmick is not that outlandish no in the, in the scheme of things no absolutely not i mean look you know the reason mongolian stomper couldn't do it is because he was already the mongolian stomper <laughs> you know but i think he was actively working you know while he was still working he was working for the the knoxville sheriff's department or wherever the hell it was nashville wherever the hell he was uh, when he was working. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, we've had police, legitimate policemen. Uh, was Dan O'Mahony one of them? I mean, we've had legitimate policemen in the, the sport before. I can't, I can't see, that wasn't him. Somebody's got a statue erected to them somewhere. Is it in Cork, Ireland? Oh, man. You know, that guy, that's going to, somebody will have the answer and tweet me about it. But, well, that's uh, yeah, like, I mean. Yeah, and there was that story that I think, Ron told recently on his show that, you know, that story of the the guy that was working for him in Knoxville was a was a police officer. And he's the guy that took that bump out of the ring and landed on the wooden chair that broke into his leg and they had to amputate his leg. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yes. You know, that that guy was was a police officer who doubled as being a wrestler. So, yeah, it's it's, you know, again, Bob Armstrong was a fireman, so it's, you know, it's probably a good thing, you know, he never went to Vince or he probably would have been a fireman. He would have been, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Sparky Plug and all that stuff. I was going to say, he could have teamed with Firebreaker Chip. He could have been, you know, one of the, one of the Patriots or whatever. (laughs) Team with, team with Todd Clumsy F. Champion. Todd Champion, oh my, yes, the, the glory days of, of, of late 80s, early 90s, uh, slightly slightly above the jobbers, uh, but but somehow still lower than, than, than curtain jerkers well, like Todd Champion. Well, you know, it's funny, I think, I don't know if we were talking about this on Twitter or not, but this is a completely total digression, but it's, I was talking to somebody about how it's weird when you see guys who were jobbers 
or like that, not like the horrible jobbers, but sort of like the Mike Jackson, like good jobbers, when they go elsewhere and then suddenly become like actual talent. Because I was watching that, I was watching Nelson Royals, uh, Atlantic Coaster. <laughs> yes. And like Tom, like Tommy Angel and and somebody Ricky, else, and, and Ricky, Ricky, yeah, Ricky Nelson are like Ricky Nelson. <laughs> are like being pushed, and I'm like, this is so weird. I mean, it was kind of like when the, I guess it's like when the, when the Jeffers went and became the Mod Squad. You know, it's like, hey, these guys are jobbers, but now they're, I mean, I guess, you know, historically that's the way it worked. It's like, you know, you started as an underneath guy, you go somewhere else, you get a better gimmick, you get pushed up the card. But it's like, you know, once we got to see everything, then it's like, you know, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, when people talk about how cable killed regional wrestling, I think part of it was, you know, we were seeing every place, so it's like, how could you go and learn your craft somewhere when we've already, you know, you've already been branded? I mean, I guess well, it's facts. Just... Look, it's like voting for the the Observer Rookie of the Year. It's like at this point, like it, you could have ten matches in a barn in Tijuana and two like in El Paso, and like in in the past, nobody would have ever heard of those. Like in this day and age, all of them are already up on on every form of social media, and you're already being touted to go to PWG. It's like it's almost impossible. I mean, were you, did you have home team sports when Crockett bought central States and they started airing central States on HDS? No, we didn't No, Cause like I did not get cable until like the summer I went to college, which was 88. So, and I don't think we had, I know we eventually would get home team sports, but I don't think we had it initially. I don't we? know. If we, yeah, I don't know if we had any. Because it, cause it's weird because like our cable where I live was like actually owned by the company, even though it was in our town, was headquartered in Oxford, like right across the Pennsylvania border. And is, there's a weird thing where, you know, up in this part of Maryland, we're technically not in, like, the Baltimore region. Like, we're technically part of Wilmington, which makes us part of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. Because it's funny, like, if you look, like, when you see, like, the, the national radar things come out, when the one for, for Maryland comes out, you'll notice that Cecil County isn't included. Yeah. That's yes. like... Yeah, because ours come, I mean, it's probably, you're probably included in this too. Like, our weather from the National Weather Service is included in the, is the one from Mount Holly that includes, like, Delaware and southeastern Pennsylvania. Like, I'm saying that would be, that, would that be the Red Line School District would fall under that, uh, you know, as far as like that little area of greater, you know, Pennsylvania, like, that, I know exactly what you mean. Like, that, yeah, that it operates. Southern New Jersey, like Millville, New Jersey, and Atlantic City, and Philadelphia, and like all of that. It yeah, it's a weird little you know little circle right there. Yeah, and I you know I would have just assumed way back that that was like Comcast territory or something like that. You know, ultimately what would become Comcast territory. But you know the reason I asked was because I had moved 
up into Columbia for a short period of time. So we had cable. I didn't have cable in Montgomery County. I'd always have to go over to somebody else's house because we had super TV uh, for the short period of time that that was alive. But, you know, I was lucky where I was because, and again, this is probably, this is definitely for another show, but we had, we were in a war zone of epic proportions and I had access to a number of channels, including 56 and 50 out of DC and Virginia that, were basically Gary Juster promoted <laughs> hubs of wrestling that weren't WWE. It's ridiculous, but I moved up to and we got HTS and we would watch it through the squiggles because it wasn't part of the, the main package. But at the time, Rocky King had been involved with the Horsemen and getting beat up by the Horsemen, and I believe it was the whole you know shine my shoes thing with Oli. And I think that had to do with the Sting feud, and I can't remember who else was involved at that time. Uh, but also at the time, they were trying to use Central States as a developmental territory, and we didn't know that at the time. So, But all of a sudden, it's like, like you said, the Jeffers. And like, well, there was the Warlord with Baby Doll, which was kind of weird, but like, Rocky King and the Italian Stallion were in the mix and like they're cutting interviews and Italian Stallion can't believe that the horsemen would say such mean racial things about Rocky and like how, you know, and you know, I, I, I wouldn't say anything about watermelon to Rocky. Like, geez, like what the hell are these interviews? And it was practice interviews. It was Gary Cortinelli out there trying to cut interviews and Rocky King trying to cut interviews and, the Jeffers and all of these other people that were now being booked by superstar Bill Dundee out there. And we had no idea it was a developmental territory. The only thing we knew is these are guys that we were watching getting their ass kicked week after week on TV or never get past a certain level, like say a Sam Houston or a warlord, never really making it past a certain level. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to take them semi-seriously. That was hard for a little kid who, you know, was smart to some of the business, but didn't understand how exactly all of it worked. Well, I guess the only thing that I could think of as close to that is when you had that weird Georgia thing where, you know, with Coronet and Michael St. John and oh, Chattanooga or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that was basically like, we're going to send all these young guys basically to learn you know, and, and Dundee's going to learn how to book. And, you know, we're going to, you know, we have so many guys in our, you know, in Memphis that we can afford to send, you know. The, a the boatload big, of guys to Georgia while they were on their northern tours. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 B, the B manager and, you know, the new Fantastics or the new, new Fabulous the fantastic ones. ones. Yeah, the Fantastic Ones and Mike Boyette and... King Carl Fergie and Frank Morrell and whoever else was was part of that team and yeah oh it's like, my god yeah it was a rogues gallery of, of people that you would get you know and it, like Cornette always talks about it and he's not lying when he'd say you know the big national star would come up and wrestle on the shows and that was Steve O and his people were, what but like yeah you know unless I know unless you were in Minneapolis. Or Atlanta for a certain period of time, you wouldn't even know who the hell Steve Olzanowski was. He was actually a pretty good worker, but like, yeah, I mean, he was the guy. And they, there were a couple of times where they had some bigger names, uh, you know, that would come up. 
and be twisted up from Atlanta. But, you know, for the most part, that was it. And, yeah, it was a it was a weird thing because I'm sure that that TV uh, touched other TVs, including Georgia and Memphis. And it must have been kind of weird to see, you know, anybody in the mix uh, on the main event of any television show if they had just jerked a curtain in Memphis or something like that. I guess, I mean, as long as they, I I don't think, I guess the only thing that would have been bad is if they would have, like, broken Kate, like, if they would have had guys working, you know, face and heel, like, other than what they were using. I mean, that would have been, like, sort of a... Like Wildcat Wendell Cooley stuff? Yeah, like, it would have been logical to say, okay, we're going to send you to, we're going to let you learn to be a heel in, in our developmental territory. You know, whereas, you know, they probably knew that people could end up seeing it. So, I mean, you know, Jared and, and or Ole or Dundee are, are all smart enough to know not to do that. But, you know, that would have been – it's funny because the only reason I even can remember who all is in was part of that is because, of course, whenever it's anybody's birthday, I post the Jim Cornette Fifi clip to their Facebook page or whatever – and so, since that's that was the first time he did the birthday cake angle, yeah, the and original. You can see, yeah, and you can see, you know, there's Frank Morrell and you know Mike. I think like it's funny because I think Bobby. I don't even know. I don't think Dennis is there. Bobby might be there, but it's so weird that it's yeah, you know, it's the, these guys you can like barely recognize. And yeah, and then it's Terry Taylor and Tommy Ro- or Bobby Fulton and Terry Taylor, and you're like, that's so weird. Again, you know, to think of, you know, there's a sliding doors wrestling moment for you. If it would have actually, Terry Taylor had been one of the Fantastics, what would have happened? Or if, you know, he would have been one of, he, it would have been Terry Taylor instead of Stan in the Fab. Like, all these weird things where you're like, it makes your brain hurt to think about. It really does, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the Fantastics, man, you know, I that it never would have worked, I don't think, with Terry Taylor and Bobby Fulton. I think Tommy Rogers, the, the, the natural edge that those two guys had for each other personality-wise and the legitimate toughness of both of those guys, even though it's a lot understated and even though people don't, they don't feel it as much because they don't they didn't look as tough as Steve and Stan like. They were awesome and they they just would not have worked with Terry Taylor and Bobby Fulton. I wouldn't I wouldn't think long term now long term. Would that have been the best thing for Terry Taylor's career? Absolutely. But you think about like them in Japan, you know what I mean? Like and you think about putting Terry Taylor in that spot and it's like, nah, can't be done. <laughs> you know, you, you, you really you couldn't do it. And, you know, that, that, that Georgia wrestling all-star show, you know, that's, I really got to go back and watch some of those again, because it wasn't very good. And he talked about like breaking kayfabe, you know, it's one of the reasons it died because in, in Ole Anderson's world, that show broke all the kayfabe. He hated that. Anything remotely Memphis, uh, including that birthday cake angle, which led to a, a great exchange between Cornette and Ole, uh, you know, I thought was uh, was pretty great. And, you know, the deal with that, with with Oli and the uh, were you the one who did that shit uh, with the birthday cake on my TV? And Cornette said, yeah. And he's like, I still got a piece of it hidden behind my ear right here. <laughs> and pissed Oli off even more, which began a 
great relationship between those two. But yeah, you know, Sherry Martell, I think was another one. You know, it was one of Jim Cornette's first, uh, it was his very first uh, employee on uh, Memphis TV. I think he may have actually had her down there as well, too. Well, it's funny, too, when you talk about the quote-unquote Memphis stuff, and you know, since we're, we were talking about Harley, is it's funny that Jared's mentioned this a couple times on his podcast, that he thinks one of the reasons that like he never really got along with Harley, or, I mean, to some level, is he told Harley that hit that bump that Harley took was too silly for Memphis. And you're like, is there really such a thing as too silly for Memphis? For real. <laughs> and you're just talking, and you're talking about like him taking like a, of like the, basically the flare flop. And you're like, and you're thinking that's what got Jerry Jarrett upset of all the things that we've seen, like in the history of like, again, I think it, I think we've probably learned now over the years how much of it is was when Lawler was booking and how much of it was when Jarrett was. It's funny if you listen to the show sometimes and people will ask Jerry about angles and he's like, well, I don't really remember that. That's probably when Jerry was booking and I was in Florida, <laughs> which which admittedly is great plausible deniability. I mean, it is. I don't, I'm not I'm not saying he's lying, but it's also great to say. I only booked half the time, and it's very possible that was not me. It's like my name's on it, but, you know, I might not have known about it at the time. When, when all else fails, blame it on Robert Fuller. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's a that's something I was I was going to talk about, not as per se, but it's, it's sort of interesting in, the, like, the last couple years, I guess mainly to coincide probably with Ron's, podcasts like this this sort of wonderful renaissance of people learning about knoxville and continental and southeastern where you know he seems to take pride in it it being sort of this like forgotten territory or the territory that nobody knew about but it's like when you listen to him tell these stories and you go back and you know now that there seems like there's more of it out there whether it's the stuff that he released or all the stuff that, that Bo has, it's like, you know, it's a shame that it, that Continental was really hidden away for as long as it was. And that was all they're doing. And it's so funny because you hear Ron talk, and I got to be honest, I always lumped Ron in with a different era of Fuller Welch. And maybe I should not have done that. And... I always think of his daddy and I think of his daddy in a way that I think of his grandfather and hearing stories about how his father helped Jerry Jarrett uh, against Nick Goulas and hearing about how he is so much different than his brother and different than his father and how he goes about things like I just lumped them all together and I can't say it's my fault. It's no one's fault because they had just let themselves be buttoned up for so long and never wanted any outside help or promotion or influence. And I think that's what it really came down for. They did not want magazines from New York or anybody else influencing their product and their fan base. And he had a very wrapped fan base in Knoxville that was essentially, I want to say closed off from everywhere else, but I mean, it was, it was certainly segregated away. And the same thing when it comes to, to, to Southeastern, 
You know, it was the same exact way. He just didn't want the publicity. And thank God that there were so many people, the Bo James and the in the Carl Stearns and the other people of the world that held on to those tapes. And and God and now God bless, we've been able to see Jerry Stubbs and Arn Anderson, and we've been able to see so much of the stuff from down there, stuff with the the bullet and the flame and and whoever it is, and thank God for that, and and to hear him talk about it and how it was built up, and you know Ron Fuller's show, when it comes to the Atlanta story and when it comes to the Knoxville story, if he doesn't do the podcast, what? I mean, he changed history with both of those shows, and you can think about Ron however you want to think about him, and and you can, you know, find fault with his opinion and how he recollects things and and all of that sort of stuff. But you know, in the the Georgia story, man, when you start looking at some of the paperwork and the dates on him and some of the the conversations that Ron you know revisits and says that he had not only with the Gunkles but with others. You know, you don't see the Gunkles in the same exact light anymore. And that's not to say that his father and everybody else involved with with the, the split from Anne and, and Ray, uh, you know, that they that they are just sitting there innocent. But we would not have known about some of the beefs that, that Ray was already having with Buddy Fuller uh, that, that way before this, you know, way before the, the entire split happened and, and them you know, saying that they took it away and, and, and Anne actually having her ducks in a row and knowing what she was going to do. It's like, you know, if it wasn't for those shows, we wouldn't have heard about that. And we certainly would not have known to the level of the Knoxville. Like, I don't know if that tape of the, you know, the plan B tape comes out if, if Ron's not doing that show. And I don't know who, if it was Bo, I don't know exactly who it was or, or how that tape ended up making its way out. But like, the timing of it was quite fortuitous as, as you know, Ron is, you know, starting his podcast and everything. So that making it out there, if he never does the podcast, does that even make its way out there? And if it does, does it have the impact? Does it, you know, that, that it does because he is doing the podcast. It's him telling these stories. And again, you got to look at through the prism of, of him and how he's thinking about things, but he has put a lot of thought into these podcasts and he's taking it very, very seriously. You know, it isn't the thing about the the that tape is it's like you wonder how exactly did that tape remain hidden for 30 years? You know, yeah. It's like 40. it's it's amazing considering how incendiary it is that it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, whenever you have like the various conspiracy theories about, you know, whatever, or moon landing or Kennedy or whatever. You know, you always say you only need one person that's in on it, <coughs> you know, to 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 spill the beans and for it for like the whole thing to fall apart. And you're like, that only took one person. It's like, I mean, obviously, you know, Bob Roop and Ron Garvin and Bob Wharton, you know, knew about that, have known about that tape for 40 years and never talked about it. You know, and it's like whoever, you know, may, else may have been connected. You know, the Pafos may have known about it because, you know, they, you know, they may have been working together by then. And it's like, how, you know, it only would have taken one person to leak it, and it took forty years for it to come out. That's just amazing. 
And but the thing was too, it's like not only that, and this I tell you, it, it it's so upsetting that uh, uh, Jim Barnett never had the opportunity to write a book or to, to he, that he goes to the, the grave with so many secrets because that tape, you know, and especially the part about, you know, basically was, it was aimed at him and, you know, talking about sex coming next, you know, and, and, and that those threats, you know, he bought the territory from Ron Fuller. He was the one who sold the territory to Blackjack Mulligan, Ric Flair, and Jim Crockett. The reason now comes a little bit more clear that he may have sold the territory for it could have been plenty of reasons, but it seems as though one of the possible reasons probably was that information getting out and was Root paid for it? Probably. Did, did somebody make out in that deal to keep it quiet? Probably. But it is amazing, like you said, that Roop and Garvin and Orton and the Malenko family and the Poffo family and Jim Barnett and the Crockett family, all of which who knew about this, which means other people surely knew about it as well, too, because if it was sent out to, to, to Jim Barnett, I'm sure it was probably sent to Sam Mushnick in St. Louis, too. Like, you know, it would be real interesting to know where that tape went, who saw it, how it got out there, and what Jim Barnett's mentality was at the time, and how much it colored what ended up happening to that entire region and territory as things went along. Well, and you think about it, that's 1979, and we're still talking about being in the Carter administration, with Jim Barnett having some degree of connection to you know the the Carter family and you know, he's on the National Humanities for the Arts Commission or whatever it was the you know he was actually an legitimate you know he obviously was a you know I'm sure a figurehead type of position but the fact was he was certainly given that position so yeah you but know, I mean Rod, that was <laughs> I mean because it's like Barnett is not just you know connected in you know, the little world of wrestling. It's like Barnett is connected in like the real world of politics. Yeah. You know, he and was you a think, real mover and shaker. But, you know, you talk, you go all the way back to, you know, him being involved, you know, in Chicago in the 50s and, oh. you know, every, you know all the things that, that he did and, it, and, you know, all the connections that he had and, again, all of the various rumors or, it's, you know, like, why did Jim Bardet end up in Australia? You know what I mean? The, yeah. You know, whether it's related to, like, that Kentucky football thing, and why did he go to Australia? Why did he sell Australia when he did? Why did he come? You know, like, did he come back just to fight the war in Atlanta? You know what I mean? It's like, and it's funny when you listen to some of the stuff about, you know, like, the old school NWA, and, you know, it's like Jarrett's told some, you know, like some anecdotes in a funny way. But you start realizing, you know, sort of just I don't want to say in like in city, but you realize how much of a real cartel they were. And, you know, it's like you can just imagine all, you know, 
the things that probably were done in the 40s and 50s that you know would be straight out of Night in the City or any like any great film noir. You know, and oh. you know, there's all these things. You know, I mean, we all know about you know what's you know what Japanese wrestling is built on the back of, and it's like I'm sure American wrestling is not all that different. All entertainment's built on the back of it. All yeah. of it. There's a, there's a subculture underneath every, and there's shadows underneath every shining light that you see. And, you know, whether it be drug money building a record label or whatever, you know, nefarious thing helped the other thing, you know, bootlegging, building your political careers in the case of the Kennedys or any of that sort of stuff. You know, there's, there's always something behind it. There's always something there. And, the amazing part of the NWA is, as you go back and look, how little honor there was amongst thieves and how the honor, some thieves were uh, on a higher pedestal than other thieves. And the story of Nick Goulas says a lot about that and that split with Jared and the, you know, that how that whole thing was maneuvered. Nobody, as Jim Cornette says, loved the NWA any more than, than Nick Goulas. But did his own partner, Roy Welch, really love him in that same way? Buddy Fuller certainly didn't love him in that same way. <laughs> you know, so you see what happened there. The women's, it's to stay in Tennessee, the entire deal with the women, you know, with with, with the, the Buddy Wolf thing and that going sideways. And, and Moolah ends up sliding in, taking advantage of the women. And you look at the, you know, how she treated them and, and how that business was done. Uh, why, you know, Roy Shire and Vern Gagne in San Francisco. It's amazing how Vern complained about Vince going in when he walked into to San Francisco and did the same thing. And, and other promoters walked into, you know, other promoters' places all the time and caused all sorts of havoc. And why some guys like a Bill Watts were able to stay on the outside and play on the outside and, and, and convince the, how they were able to convince the Alliance that uh, it, it's better that they stay out so they wouldn't look like a monopoly. And he's only doing that with the side eyes if he can do a bunch of shady stuff he wants to do because he's got a shady deal with the Louisiana State Athletic Commission. It's just like the more you go, the more kind of wacky stuff that you get. And, again, it goes kind of back to, you know, I wish Barnett could have written a book and I wish Harley could have written a deeper book because some of the, you know, some of the crazy stories that I'm sure everybody has seen uh, are certainly very interesting. You know, you hear, always hear about Jim Cornette will talk about the tire iron being used, you know, to, to solve problems in wrestling. And you, you think about how many people really got probably messed up, you know, because of a, you know, a make-believe business with some really, really, really real consequences. Well, that's like, you know, I think Jarrett was told a story about, you know, how when they had the NWA conventions in Vegas, you know, like people would always go in and sweep the rooms beforehand to make sure there weren't any bugs in there. And you're like, haha, that's funny. And you're like, well, there's a reason they're doing that. It's, you know, it's like you go back to, again, you know, the stuff in the forties with the government and the monopoly and, you know, it's sort of like the consent decrees in Hollywood, you know, it's all that, that's all from the same era about monopolies and competition and all that kind of thing where, you know, it's, you know, it's like you have to break the rules every once in a while to show that there are rules. And it's like, yeah, it's, 
all the stuff you sort of it's like you know yeah if, if Cornette's gonna make a comic telling funny stories it's like there's there's the there's the next volume of that graphic novel we should have it's like the untold t- you know the real untold tales oh my god I mean just it, <laughs> the 20s and the 30s and the 40s you know as I mean pre-war pre-world war two. I mean, you, you look at how many double crosses and how much shady business and how many shoot injuries took place. And, you know, that there is there's a whole book on policemen that is still yet to be written. And, you know, it would take a Carl Stern. It would take a uh, a, a late J. Michael Kenyon probably to, to do it. A Matt Farmer, you know, and, and everybody collaborating together. But like. Some of those stories, my gosh, you know, that you could probably tell about like a Dr. Benjamin Roller and things like that, you know, from that era where it was a literal Wild West show, you know, place. I mean, can you imagine? Well, that story that that Ron tells about Roy Welch when he's when he goes when Roy Welch goes with that one guy to have the shoot and the breaks the guy's orbital bone and like pulls his eye out and all that. And you're just like, you know, you just imagine how, how often stuff like that really, you know, and then he goes back into the dressing room and says, you know, I was going to take out your other eye or whatever. And you're just like, Oh, it's like, it's no, you know, they're just some, some crazy, crazy, crazy stories. With some crazy people, you know, I mean, Leroy McGurk in the bar, you know, what really happened there? You know, what really happened with his other eye? You know, what, what, what exactly was it? I mean, and the thing about wrestling is it was, it's like, it's like any other business. There's a lot of bad people that are in it. And at one time, you know, there were some legitimately tough people who you can be a tough guy. I mean, you think about like a Ross Tucker, you know, like, Played football, you know, yeah, he was a, an offensive lineman in the National Football League, and you could probably pigeonhole him, but you hear him, and it's like he's, uh, I think, went to, to, didn't go to Harvard, but went to Princeton or something like that, and he's incredibly well-read and stuff like that, and he's the guy who shatters the stereotype. And then you meet the people who are the stereotype, because stereotypes are rooted in truth. <laughs> and you meet some of these people, and I have met people, I'm sure you have in wrestling, that... You know, you couldn't imagine them doing any other type of business besides pressing license plates inside a jail somewhere. But like, you know, they just were tailor made for wrestling. They have no social skills outside of it. They are a danger to themselves and probably others, but they would thrive in wrestling. And back in the, the olden days, there was just a different mentality. And you had people that didn't mind hurting other people. And Eddie Graham was like that. You know, he's one of the modern stories of he loved that sort of thing. And in the pro wrestling business, because of the way it was set up at the time and because you could you knew what you could get away with, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of it probably really innocent people that uh, got crossed up with wrestling. They got hurt pretty bad, too. Well, you listen, you know, you talk about like Eddie Graham is such an interesting, like, contradiction that he's this guy who is this huge philanthropist, you know, again, ingrained in 
you know, local politics or whatever, donates all this money and blah, blah, blah. And then you hear the stories about the snake pit. And you're like, this guy is like a humanitarian and like this horrible sadist all rolled into one. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's lots of people like that in every profession, but you can certainly see wrestling having more than its fair share of people like that. It seems, you know, that they're nice and pleasant and, you know, you always... Uh, Jerry Sandusky ran a, a boys camp, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, and not to, to 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 like I'm trying to equate the two, but you know, whether <laughs> oh excuse me, whether it it be because people think that they're doing charitable and philanthropist uh, works, and that gives them a license, you know, like sometimes like you get some bosses that think because you know they're paying you, they can talk any type of a reckless way to you, and maybe to some people they can, to me they can't. You know, and there are just some people that maybe like uh, maybe have a nefarious streak that for some reason want somebody close or want to maintain that image because it makes it easier to be that asshole to, to, to somebody weaker or to somebody like that. And I think that was the case. Of Eddie Graham, you know, Eddie Graham learned that whole boys ranch thing from from Dory Funk Sr. Now, we don't have any you know, news of Dory Funk Sr. being rotten or anything like that. But, like, you know, <laughs> if you told me he was a rough guy and from Western Texas that, that maybe did some, you know, stuff that wouldn't be uh, as acceptable today, I could believe that, you know. And Eddie Graham was one of his disciples. And Eddie with that boy's ranch and all the things that he did, you know, he, he was a – I'm not saying it was all a front, but you you see where his life went. You see his family situation, and you hear other people talk about how the relationship that Mike had with Eddie was very strained and very distant. And there were other guys like a Kevin Sullivan and others that seemed to sometimes have a better relationship with Eddie than his own son did. You know, and you look at all of that sort of stuff, and you wonder. You know, what 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 was hidden beneath? You know, what what caused this guy to, to be this way? And, and what were the true levels of, of his sadism? What were the true levels of his uh, of his negativity and, and some of the things that he did? You know, because you, you see some of the things and you hear about, you know, other people breaking bones and pulling tendons on command because Eddie said so or Eddie thought it was funny. You know, can you imagine what you didn't hear about? You know, Eddie Graham snuff films. Eight millimeter was made about Eddie Graham. Nobody report that. <laughs> well, it's it's funny too. And you go back. There's that story that that Ron tells on his podcast about you know sort of like when they were doing those shoot challenges. It's like he had Dale Lewis, who was like this accomplished you know amateur wrestler, whatever, so he could shoot on guys, and it was you know just business. And then you have Hodge, who was like this you know crazy guy and then hodge snaps one night because the the mark is goes a little too far with lewis you know and hodge tells him to like hurt the guy and then when dale lewis doesn't want to hodge says hurt him or i'll hurt you and you know i mean it's like you know that's the again yeah wrestling seems like it was it was made for like yeah, it's good that people had that outlet rather than 
what they could have done worse in society, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, you, can you imagine? <laughs> can, can you imagine? And, like, you know, wrestlers are wired differently anyway. Fighters are, wi- are wired differently anyway. So, like, it's always very jarring because you, you think about the friendly Danny Hodge and you know his, his deadly grip and all that sort of stuff, but you hear stories about how Danny could have hurt somebody and decided not to, or there was the threat of Danny hurting somebody and he decided not to. So to hear a story about Danny hurting somebody or really wanting to, and then, you know, literally hurting somebody. I mean, I, I, I was a little surprised, but I guess when you really stop and you think about it, am I all that shocked? No, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, for right or wrong, uh, that's the case. And, you know, it, it, I remember Jim Ross, uh, he really, especially people who wanted to troll him, he told the story about his father and the whole thing with the puppies. You ever hear the story? Yeah, 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 I know. And it's sad and it's awful. And, like, even in a, it, back in the day, I could not, I couldn't have, have done it. But, like, does it surprise me that somebody in the, the early 40s, uh, from Oklahoma or from a rural place, uh, had that view of to get rid of a problem. Uh, does that support? No, it doesn't because I know there's people today that do it, you know, and again, does it make it right? No, but it's like, I remember people, oh, you're killing Jim Ross for that. It's like, you know, that was really his father. Like he was forced into doing that. And I know people, again, they want to troll him and take shots at him for it, but like, you know, if it's going to be you get hit in the head with that hammer or or you kill these puppies, like, what's it going to be? <laughs> you know, and it, it just it was awful. But again, that that does that story surprise me? No. I mean, in just in the modern times with Michael Vick, you know, with dogfighting, you know, people who come up from other countries with cockfight, Roy Jones with cockfighting, for heaven's sakes, you know, in this country. You know, we didn't look down, you know, again, it, it, it was amazing how Roy Jones could talk about cockfighting on HBO. And he never really got any blowback for that. You know, I don't think you can do that now, but it just shows how times change. Well, I mean, I mean, I live in the country, so I certainly know that, one, people have a different relationship with animals than, you know, your sort of suburban folk or your or your city folk. Oh, yeah, completely. And I, learned, I, mean? that, I learned that moving down here to, to Briscoe land. Yeah, big time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, do you see animals as pets, part of your family, or do you see them as food, or do you see them as a way to feed your family, or as your business? So it's just, you know, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest hunting advocate, but I mean, I know, you know, I certainly know plenty of people that hunt, and you know, and you know, ours. You know, it's their primary their primary motivation is, you know, food. So well, yes, yeah, so every every deer hunter isn't a is not a a horrible person, and you'll know that because like you didn't have a deer run into your car in the neighborhood that you moved into in the burgeoning community that you think is so nice that they cut out of these woods and oh yeah, remember you're taking all of these animals habitat away. So, like, you need to thin the population. And, you know, there are plenty of assholes in this world. And believe me, I know a lot of them. I moved to southern Delaware and again, you know, I this was in a lot of ways it was culture shock when I moved down. It was completely different. But, like, you know, not everybody is evil. You know, not every farmer is evil. <laughs> you know, it's just 
you know, again, it's just it's just one of those things. And, you know, it's everybody's different. And pro wrestlers are just they're wired differently. It's one of the reasons like we talk about, like, you know, AEW people, the thing about unions came back up again. Fuck, you know, I got to do Observer Live. It's like, I don't want to hear about unions. And I'm a union guy. I'm pro-union for the most part, you know. But when it comes to pro wrestling, should they be? Yeah. Should they be under a SAG or under something? Yes. But I I don't give a shit. If you're not going to do it, especially at a time now when you have all the opportunity in the world to do it at a time where WWE is using an agency that also represents talent to negotiate their deals. I mean, give me a break, you know? So until it happens, there's nothing you can say about it, but it'll probably never happen because of how some of these dudes are wired. It just, it, it's in some ways, it's the last, it's the last certainly of a, of a, of a unique, of a, it's certainly a unique business. Anywhere you can have this kind of weird crossover, uh, hybrid, independent contractor, and and completely indentured servant employee in some ways. You know, on the WWE level is is fascinating, but it's even more fascinating as you go down the line too. Yeah, it's just that's one of those things where it's like, it's like I agree in theory, but I would not ever hold my breath. You know, no. when you have. And then it's like, yes, I agree with it. Well, I agree with this in principle, but then it's like, well, how far, how far down do you go? It's like, does, you know, does your local indie, you know, provide healthcare for your guys that wrestle every weekend in their t-shirt and cutoff shorts and, you know, we're basically backyarders if they. You know, like, if they break their leg doing some stupid spot where they want to dive off the top turnbuckle through a table, it's like, you know, yes, that sucks, but it's like, if I'm the promoter, I'm like, am I responsible for this? Am I? It's like playing semi-pro football. It's like, you know, at some point, like, you know, you have to, to take care of your, you know, responsibilities in running a show, and I think you should probably look. If you can afford to run a show, and I'm sorry, I, I agree with this. If you can afford to put on a show, you can afford to get an EMT there. And I want to be not to insult EMTs or anything like that, but let's cut the shit that you can't offer some of these people a 30-pack of natural light and give them a couple of bucks and say, can you hang around? You know, and I'm sorry that you may have to take out a little bit of a loan to do this, but I think there should be. Some at least have somebody in the radius close in case something happens. But with that said, like you mentioned, you know, it's like playing semi-pro football or like playing on your, you know, your 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 work team's softball. If you blow your knee out rounding second, you just sue the, 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 the company. No, you decided to go out there and do that. And I think you're right. That's where you, know, you start to wonder. It's like, well, OK, is it a WWE only union? What about ROH? ROH is owned by Sinclair Broadcasting. You know, it's like you start you start going and it's like, OK, well, how is this whole thing going to work and how does this whole thing figure itself out? And it's just it's it's very difficult. And, and that's where the wrestling business did a it really did a masterful job because it's also, you know, it's such a unique business that it's pointless for anybody politically to bother to go touch. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's just there's so many issues, you know, 
And this, this thing is like the business is like interconnected so much now, especially now that they're, you know, it's like, is anybody, re- you know, is anybody really going to complain about, you know, Vince running and so- like everyone will complain every time they're running a show in Saudi Arabia, but it's like, you know, what are people really going to do about it or what, you know, it's like, you know, I guess. I heard them talking about this on TalkSport today because the last couple of days people were upset because, you know, the Joshua rematch is going to be in Saudi Arabia. It's the latest thing. You know, it's the next Blood Money show. And people are all like, oh, I can't blah, 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 blah. And they're like, where have you been for like the last two, at least two years where, you know, we've unfortunately been dealing with this in Vince and now people are starting to deal with it like in the actual quote unquote real entertainment world. You know, it's just, you know. Oh, the, it got brought back up again, you know, because, again, look look at the site. Everything is a, is the cycle, unfortunately, for for the most part, because, you know, WWE going at a time where, you know, the with Khashoggi being murdered and all that, you know, that was in the forefront of the news. And you heard about people pulling out and, and companies pulling out of summits and entertainers pulling out of, of shows there. And then... It kind of goes away, and the outrage goes in a different direction. And, you know, Joshua and the announcement of this, you know, it was kind of jarring for people. It's the first time, you know, for boxing purposes, at least on this level, that they're, they've now had to deal with that. And it's kind of dumb, in my opinion, to have it there. I, I don't, when there's, you know, you could have had that show in Macau. You could have had it in Vegas, New York, uh, Wembley. You could have sold out Wembley with it. And I'm sure we wouldn't have wanted that, but like this has got nothing to do with anything except for money, and they can spin it any way that they want to. But it's not like boxing hasn't had a history of going to places where there have been despots in charge. <laughs> you know, we the thriller Manila or, or any you know. Well, that's what hey, I said. Take, take your choice. Yeah, I said that to somebody the other day, and I like they were up. I said, I said. Do you understand what the rumble in the jungle was and yeah. why it was there? And the whole, you know, oh, yeah, the thrill in Manila or Sun City or I'm like, this is nothing new. No, <laughs> it's just, no, and it's it sucks. And I think they could have made, you know, but the, the thing is, I could say they, they would have made a lot of money in a lot of other places without the hassle, but they wouldn't have made as much money. And the zone is, is I'm sure, sucking wind in, in North America. You, know, you look at the zone worldwide, like they have WWE in Japan, they have Major League Baseball in Japan. You go to different places and you see what the zone has and what they offer. And, you know, it may not be great programming. You know, I'm not sure. Let's just say in, you know, sub Sahara Africa, they have the rights to the NFL. And it's like, okay, I don't know how well that does. But in other places, they are, especially in like a place like Japan, they are very well suited and ready to go. But when it comes to North America, they put a lot behind Canelo Alvarez. And frankly, that's about it, you know, and they are, I'm sure hurting because I don't know how many, you know, subscribers they have, but I can guarantee you if, if it was a significant amount, we'd hear about it a lot more. Let's just say that. And we're not hearing about it a lot more. And in fact, we're only hearing about problems. So for Eddie Hearn, for Matchroom Boxing, for DAZN, I'm sure this is going to be a great windfall for them. So it doesn't surprise me in that way. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's the outrage of the day right now. And I mean, it's legitimate outrage. I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly thrilled with it myself, but 
there's going to be a next thing. And in fact, the next thing is probably going to be the next uh, WWE show. Somebody asked me, when do you think we'll see Goldberg again? Who does he face? I don't know, but it's probably going to be on a Saudi Arabian show. Which is funny in and of itself for so many, so many reasons. Um, as we wrap up, I fear we'll go back to Harley. Um, as we said before, there's plenty of Harley out there from all over the place. If you were to say, if you were to pick out a couple things off the top of your head that you would recommend for people to track down, like whether it's a fun match or, I mean, I think we sort of know the historical ones. I mean, I think everybody's seen Stark. Anybody that's listening to our show has seen Stark 883 before. Well, what do you think are maybe some hidden gems out there that maybe people should check out or they may not have heard about that are worth seeing off the top of your head? Uh, the Von Erich stuff. And I know some of it's on YouTube. I don't know how much of it is. And the same thing with like the network, because again, I'd have to go and look, but like pick a Von Erich. In fact, pick all the Von Erichs, you know, the, the Kevin David Carey storylines in St. Louis, um, that were sort of mirrored in role class, but you know, obviously St. Louis being a, a different animal, that stuff is really, really good. And it's really, it transcends the eras and it's, it's very, it's very easy to get into. So I, I would definitely say that stuff for sure. Um, the thing ooh. that, when I was I was just doing some puttering around on YouTube the other day, just looking at stuff, and I think it's probably safe to say that you could probably put in Harley's name in like any major like seventies and eighties star, and you could find matches where Harley wrestled them more than likely, and and not necessarily where you would expect too. I mean, I was watching earlier. I saw we were talking about Bleach Blonde Harley a while ago. I was watching a match between Harley and Dusty from Japan from 1975. <laughs> That's awesome. So I mean, I'm like I'm sure people have seen Dusty wrestle Harley. I think in Houston. I'm sure probably in Florida and maybe in or Miami, Miami. Yeah. Yeah, in Miami. Yeah, or in the Crockets. You know, but Dusty versus Harley in Japan in 1975, most people probably haven't seen. You know, I mean, it, again, this is not something unusual, but there's highlights of, if people didn't know this happened, when Harley wrestled Billy Graham when both were world champions, uh, you know, for the aforementioned Eddie Graham in Florida. I mean, we only have, like, highlights of it, but... It's still interesting to watch the NWA champion wrestle the WWF champion. Oh, you know, sure. And, well, that's like seeing Harley on TV when he goes up there for the, the you know, he has the match with Backlund. Which we're trying to think of what year would that have been? 80, oof, whatever year that was. You know, that's, that's another, again, that's another thing that, that, that race did. I mean, Again, the, the WWWF title was a regionalized title between what, 19, when did they need help with big time wrestling and, 
and Pedro and all that stuff, 72 or whatever it was to 83. I mean, it was a regionalized title and you don't have, you know, Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk at, at, you know, on WWF TV, but you do have Harley race, you know? And uh, again, the, the, the stuff with the Von Ericks is really good. Um, you know, boy, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something like off the, I'm trying to just think of something low key that people wouldn't have seen before. Or that that would be kind of on the quiet side because the thing about like the grand match is it's not that good. And granted, you know the weather had a lot to do with that too. But it's not like that was a great match or anything like that. It's like any of his stuff with Baba. It's probably looked back with great lore and things like that. But like you know, it's not that good. <laughs> you know, it's not that good at all. So you know, race and. I think there's a, a Harley race Bob Orton match, which is out there from his from when when Orton was a good guy in Mid Atlantic. I think that's out there. That's good. Oh God, I, I, you know, I'd really have to think about it. I'd have to go back and look uh, because again, most of the matches I think about are, are ones that are again are pretty big and pretty accessible for everybody to see, whether it be against Dusty or Harley Race or the classics. You know, again, classics with Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr., which are out there. Which, you know, I, I can't. Look, if you're not an older wrestling fan or don't have the patience, you don't have the patience. But, like, if you can watch an Okada match for 30 or 40 minutes, you can damn sure watch a Harley Race Jack Briscoe match for 60. And, and those are out there. And those are, are out there easily, you know, to see. As well as matches, like, if you go to Kansas City with Harley and Rufus R. Jones and guys like that, that, you know, you think about Ric Flair and how good he would make people look. You know, Harley Race had to do that, and he did it in a little bit of a different way, too. Uh, Race, Ric Flair was great at, at really getting people to kind of come around and having a formula of his own to work, whereas Harley was one of those guys that when you see him in there against whoever it is, whoever your local guy is, you know, he's wrestling, whether it be a Ron Fuller or a Jerry Lawler, there's another, there's a great one. You know, from Jerry Lawler from that series in 77 or whatever it was like that. That's, you know, he would be able to meld their style and just basically make it work for him. Whereas, you know, Flair was great at making the other guy turn around and fitting it in his formula. And there's again, we sort of talked about the novelty of champion versus champion. There are matches uh, mainly from Japan that are available to watch where you can see Harley team with Nick Bockwinkle, which are just fun because it's the novelty of seeing Harley race and Nick Bockwinkle as a tag team. Yeah, because most of us, I mean, the only way we ever knew him, and I'm talking about Nick Bockwinkle, there's another another prime example of a guy who, again, he, he lingered over into a different era because they needed him to in the AWA, but, you know, it was another great example of just a, uh, again, in his own way, the the ultimate—he <laughs> was the ultimate AWA champion. That is for for damn sure. Uh, and you know, the only way we knew him was in the magazines and that whole the epic struggle and rivalry of who is the real world champion. You know, and I, I got magazines here with like Harley Race's plan to you know for 1982. You know, first Flair, then Bockwinkle, and you know, and stuff like that. So it's like. You know, it's it's that's the one really amazing thing about Japan. And like before 
Harley came back to the States or before they, they came back to Mid-Atlantic and did the whole deal with Harley and Ric Flair, they were on tour for All Japan. And before they went on tour for All Japan, all of the Ducks started to get in a row before Starcade because Dick Slater and Roddy Piper were on that same tour with Ric Flair over there where Flair was wrestling Jumbo Saruta and wrestling Harley Race in rematches. We had those guys on that tour, and it was right before they went on that where Dick Slater pile drove Johnny Weaver on the floor and was suspended. And Roddy Piper's ear was injured by, by Greg Valentine, and he was sent out. And Bob Orton was actually on a tour in New Japan uh, working for them and also had, had done time in, in Southwest and in St. Louis. And all that was set up before he ended up coming back later on uh, to, to set himself up for teaming with Slater. It's like, you know, all that stuff was set up because of those guys going over to Japan and those guys going over for that tour. But that's where the seeds got planted before that. I believe it was in May. I think I wrote it down here. It was in... Yeah, it was like I think it was in May of that year where, you know, Slater went over and Chavo Guerrero and Roddy Piper and Ric Flair and, and Bruiser Brody and, and Bill Irwin and who oh, Mike Davis, Mike Davis and, and, and Nikolai Volkov. How did it affect Mid-Atlantic? Mike Davis also went over to try to get some some seasoning at a time where you will see Mike Davis's name and a lot of results for for Charlotte and uh, down in Florida before he became an RPM. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's just it's amazing how Japan would make such uh, strange bedfellows. You know, it's always crazy to see like a, a Dundee or a Valiant in an all Japan ring. It's just a, it's it's a mind fuck. <laughs> but, yeah, I would definitely recommend. Yeah, just go to YouTube, put in Harley's name, pick out any famous guy you wouldn't have normally expected to see Harley Russell. I did not know about this until earlier when I was Googling around. There's footage of Harley doing an angle in Calgary with the Stomper. And think about think about that, Matt. Think about Harley wrestling the Stomper in like the in like the middle seventies. How, yeah. cra- well, how think, crazy think would about that have an NWA been? champion out in Calgary at that time. You know, we know it's an NWA territory, but who the hell goes out there? God damn it, Harley went out there. And there's probably footage of him somewhere in somebody's basement from wrestling with uh, for Al Tomko in Vancouver as well, too. It's just it's absolutely amazing. I mean, race in Wahoo, which I, I know I'm pretty sure, at least, that there's Houston stuff. Yeah, I the- know there's Mid-Atlantic stuff. And, and there's another I mean, two guys again. I was a big Wahoo fan. So, like, there's another one where and you don't have to worry about sitting there for an hour for those either. Just have to worry about a little bit of blood and a lot of chops and punches. You know, and then there's a famous match that people may or may not have seen, you know, where Harley wrestles Andre in Houston. And that's that's a really entertaining match. And you're thinking, you know, again, you've got the world champion versus Andre. And it's like, just on paper, you're like, well, how, how is this going to end? Because, you know, that, that's, that makes it worth watching just on that, on that basis alone. Well, and in the magazine, I mean, Harley... When I was, because I, I knew about Connect, but the first person like that I ever remember hearing about that slammed Andre the Giant was Harley Race. Now I think, you know, you find out later on like Ronnie Garvin did it, <laughs> like you know everybody gets people he really liked, and obviously like Connect, you know, but like you know the the, the whole Hogan thing, like Harley was, uh, t- to my knowledge, and I, I could be wrong, he was the first one to slam 
He was the first one to slam Andre, at least for as far as my memory banks go, as far as being a little kid in the, in the early eighties. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's sad that he's gone, but we are very lucky. There is so much out there and, you know, and, and Google around for, again, there's lots of great Harley stories. We didn't retell this one, but I would encourage people to track down the story that John Hitchcock wrote about, uh, on one of his websites about when when Harley came into Russell Magnum, and that is that is a that's a hilarious story, and you're just like you know, you'd think Magnum had been around long enough to know not to mess with Harley, but sometimes a guy's just got to do what he's got to do. That's uh, again, it was a t- different era. Different guys, different business, different mentality. And, uh, yeah, you know, Harley Race was uh, he was a he was a man's man. And the one thing that you hear more than anything is just the amount of respect that everybody had for him, whether you liked him or not. Uh, you didn't fuck with him. You didn't mess with him. Uh, you, you respected him because. He gave you every reason to respect him. You know, when you're that good and night after night after night and you're that professional night after night after night and you make people look that good night after night after night and make them a lot of money night after night after night, you've done your job in the the business of pro wrestling. There's not much more than anybody else can ask of you. And it's not much more than anybody else can, can, can ask of Harley, again, other than, Man, I wish he may have written that book, but you never know. Maybe everybody can get together and work on one uh, uh, post-mortem and maybe do a little bit uh, more more of a service to him. But until we get that, at least we got all these podcasts and, and the Observer Newsletter and, and, and some really smart people that have put some nice things on paper about Harley. That is well said. Um, do you want to have anything to plug besides Observer Live that you want to mention before we go? Well, you know, if you, again, if you want a little bit more, you know, the, the Harley stories, uh, Brian Last did a good job, and I got a chance to, to be a part of that uh, with George Shire, and he goes back to, to pieces of old shows with Ron Fuller, with Tommy Rich, with uh, John Hitchcock, with plenty of people who get a chance to, to talk about some, some Harley stories. And, you know, again, thank God George Shire talks about his time in the AWA because, like you mentioned uh, earlier on, you know, a lot of that's lost the time. A lot of the Kansas City, St. Louis stuff is is getting lost the time too. So uh, that's, I think, a pretty important show to to keep the history up and and to maintain. And I always like going on those shows. Like coming on here too, almost more than I like doing the uh, Wrestling Observer Live and the Big Audio Nightmare over at the WrestlingObserver.com, but. They're paying the bills for me right now, or at least part of some of the bills. So I, I at least got to try my best. Well, yeah, since I do not watch uh, most modern stuff, I am not going to ask you about the G1 or about AEW or anything like that. So this is this is a generally a modern free zone, unless you want to talk about CMLL. So, <laughs> so yeah, so, you, you know, you always have a place to talk to talk history here whenever you want 
I really appreciate that, and I love it. And I, I owe you some 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 writings that I got to put down and, and make them evergreen, so you can have them and have them ready to go for the next time uh, you, you put out a new zine. So uh, I definitely owe you that, and I owe you a big thank you for having me on because you know how much I love talking about history. Yeah. <laughs> and when you do observe a live, sometimes you know it's a uh, I'm a man from a different era, so uh, I, I try to get by it. I try to stay as progressive as I can, but uh, sometimes it's nice to be able to to crawl back into your history and, and do your warm and fuzzies again and get yeah. nostalgic. And, yeah, because that's one of the reasons we're all here. Yeah, I am lucky that that I am not beholden to anyone. That basically, yes, when I get my observer every week, I am not. I am not duty bound to actually read it cover to cover. You know, I think I think on a good week I read maybe half. <laughs> on a bad week I read maybe four pages. So, you know, it's like I think I I basically yeah, I keep my subscription which is now closing in on 30 years that uh you still get the paper? Yes, I get I get There you go. <laughs> yes, I am I am actually paper only. I am, I am, you know, and you are not alone in that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I still, yeah, I have my stack going back to, I think I still, as far as I know, I have 99.9% of, like when I wrote my review a couple weeks ago of, of the Bowder and the Booker book, it's like, you know, I, I, my subscription started back in the, in the old, in the typewriter day before, you know, if, if people think the type is small now, it's like the observer looks the way it is now since 1991. <laughs> so I was getting yeah. it, I was getting it before that. So, um, I always yeah. thought, what, what can you imagine if, Dave and of course and then I met Dave and then you know you know he could never change but it's like can you imagine if if Dave had his content and this is no uh, you know slight against Wade but like with Wade's you know his content with Wade's uh, aesthetics and and artistic uh, look at how he has changed the torch from over the years it would have been a nice mixture and that's not to slight Wade at all because he does a little he does a different type of business uh than what dave has done but man yeah i mean it's always the charm of it uh is there but man it does take sometimes years uh, it took you an extra set of eyes to read what the hell dave had typed up sometimes incorrectly or with a raised o no i i will certainly admit to there there were times when when i was when i would get the digital version that i would just you know re repaste it to 120 percent I have I'm certainly guilty of having done that in the past. So but then it then it's even bigger. It's like if you think, you know, well, well I was still getting it I think when it was 12. So I mean, yeah, I can just imagine if you took one of the giant double issues and you know, cut and pasted it and made it 12. Oh, I made the mistake of doing it. Yeah, to like 12 point aerial and I printed it, it was like 79 fucking pages. <laughs> and it's it's still, it's like good guy. It's just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it is, is absolutely amazing the, the, the level of stuff over the years that has been shoved into that. And there's been a lot of contributors over the years too. Obviously, it's not just Dave alone and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, uh, thank God we had it as the, the paper of record for so long. No matter what you think of Dave, because you know, if it wasn't for Dave and Wade, you know, 
who's left? You know, the, the Steve Beverly's and, and, and all those other people of the world, they all, they all went to the side and the only people keeping that old tradition alive are, are Dave and Wade. Yeah. There's some newsletter peoples who have, who have gone, I I've heard unfortunately into the wrestling uh, commentary area and has not been well received as their, as their uh, print skills. I've heard. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this can happen. Yes. So, uh thanks again mike and everybody check out that stuff and we will talk to everybody next time